Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Shaping of Middle-Earth. Uh, after tonight, we are fully three-quarters of the way through this uh, through this little seminar here. Um, I wanted to remind you to uh, be preparing and sending questions so we can you know, be happy to talk about anything you guys want to talk about. If you have something off-topic uh, that, uh, that you wanted to discuss, I'd be okay doing that. You know, feel free. You, it's okay to send me questions. Of course, I will give priority to ones that are related to this text, obviously, but uh, if there are other things you wanted to talk about, I'd be happy to do that. We have that time set aside, so just wanted to make sure to remind you guys of that. Also, don't forget that uh, the Dracula class is coming up next, uh, so you can start um, so you can start your uh, advanced reading of Dracula, though you should finish reading Shaping of Middle-Earth first, of course, but just so that you can begin your acquisition of your first uh, Mythgard Academy uh, uh, public domain book that we've ever done. Um, so uh, that'll be uh, that'll be that'll be. Fun. I can't wait to talk about Dracula. It's it's. I was going to say it's also the oldest book we've done, which is pretty much the same thing as saying it's the first public domain book that we've ever done. But uh, but I'm excited that we're leaving the 20th century, which is cool. Um, uh, barely leaving the 20th century. I mean, it's 1897, uh, so by the narrowest of margins, uh, it leaves the 20th century. But uh, uh, but yeah, that's true. Arthur, that's a good point. Uh, it will be a perfect book for Yana, uh, who is active in the middle of the night and sleeping during the day. Absolutely, yes. Uh, any of our European uh, <laughs> listeners who join us for these evening Eastern Time classes will be able to relate on a deep personal level uh, with Dracula and a lot of the nocturnal goings-on in that story. That's it's an excellent point, Arthur. All right. Let us get to the earliest annals of Valinor. So, okay. Um, I think this... Okay, so this text, which is a relatively short text, right? I mean, the you know, it doesn't take all that much time to read the whole, you know, the entirety of those earliest annals uh, that Tolkien wrote. Um, and then there's all the, you know, there's the long appendix on the Anglo-Saxon stuff. Um, and one of the things, of course, that I would like to emphasize uh, with uh, today's discussion is how important it is always to read the appendices, especially when the appendices are discussing long Anglo-Saxon translations of the primary text. Um, very important. Uh, but we'll come around to that. The core theme that I really want to emphasize today, the main point, the thing that I was kind of beating my head against for a while um, in planning tonight's class was what the heck is going on here? Like, what, what, what is this thing? What is he doing in writing this? I mean, here we've gone to all this trouble, right, of creating this really nice, attractive, consistent narrative that fits all of our observations of all of these works, right? Remember this, this, this sort of idea that, 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 that we've had, which I think is just lovely, right, of how, um, you know, that he, he, how he shifted from the Lost Tales, you know, sort of the long, sustained story with the, you know, with the frame tale and the, and the inset stories, and how he seems to have pitched that in favor of doing longer narrative poems, and then those kind of fizzled out, and then he did, he sort of, by this sort of accident, because of his need to send that summary um, in, to accompany the children of Hurin, he sort of backed into this 
new genre that he discovered and expanded on in the Quenta, the whole plot summary genre, right? And so, remember, we had this lovely narrative, right, sort of meta-narrative, right, of Tolkien's Silmarillion writing career, um, which has been sort of culminating here in the uh, in the Quenta, where you have now the the increasingly gorgeous Quenta, this this you know that he's really kind of made a home for himself in this in this plot summary genre, and, uh, and so we now we now have this 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 rich uh, and suggestive. Uh, you know, uh, uh, what's that word? That uh, oh, epitome. That's right, uh, epitome uh, of the first age story, which is seems to be designed to accompany those long epic poems. So, I- especially if he ever gets his uh, uh, his act in gear, which we know he's not going to, uh, and finish all those epic poems, you know, this would be this would be a real corker, right? So, okay, so we've got this. We've got this uh, story now. The Embarcanta and the maps and stuff doesn't really interfere with that, right? I mean, it, it, we, we, this is sort of an understandable thing. I mean, one of the things we were looking at last week when we were looking at the maps and the Embarcanta is how that seems to be such an important part of Tolkien's creative process, right? That it's not just... It is not... You know, the maps obviously are not merely illustrations that are drawn up in order to... Um, you know, to to merely kind of be a a, a sort of a, a supporting document or a, a pure uh, a pure helper, you know, to the text, a mere accompaniment to the text. But rather, we can see that his 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 writing these out and formulating these things seem to be part of his creative process itself. We were looking at what, at what looked like some examples of that last time, especially uh, there in the first Silmarillion map. Um, and the Embarcanta shows, you know, a, a, a pretty clear sort of impulse to fill in the background, right? Not content with just sort of telling these stories, he wants to explain stuff, right? He wants to, uh, to, 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 <laughs> I was going to say he wants to round things out, which is ironic when we're talking about the map of Middle-earth, right? It's being flat and all. But anyway, um, by the time we get to the new, to the Numenorians, we're doing some serious rounding, right? Um, but anyway, this, that kind of impulse, that, uh, that appendix writing impulse, um, you may be familiar with the story of the the sort of the the dolor of the appendix of the return of the king um uh, if you haven't heard the story i won't tell you all the you know I won't go over it, all the back and forth things there but but basically the short version of the story is that the return of the king was delayed now i should say as a footnote um Fans of writers like uh, George R. R. Martin and Patrick Rothfuss would scoff at the idea of the Return of the King being delayed as it came out, like a year and a half after the the Two Towers, which is like a mere breath of time in comparison uh, to how much some authors make you wait for the next book. Uh, however, according to the original publication plan, which had been announced, that was a very significant delay, and lots of people were uh, very eager. I mean, just rem- think how you would feel if you were reading The Lord of the Rings and you got as far as Sam lying unconscious on the floor of the of uh, of Shelob's cave while Frodo, uh, while unconscious Frodo was carried off by the orcs to their tower and then had to wait a year and a half, right? So, um, anyway, this is... Um, I, yeah, exactly, Yana. Frodo was alive but taken by the enemy. That's that's that, that's that's the last sentence, right? And then you wait for a year and a half. Anyhow, so but th- the book was delayed because of the appendices. Um, he had 
he had said he was going to do these appendices, and when it came to it, he, he, he didn't get them done very quickly. And they kept growing and growing and growing and growing. I mean, if you uh, look at Appendix A as it's, as it's written, right, um, and then you think about the whole um, Quest of Erebor section of um, Unfinished Tales, which was also included originally in Appendix A. So the whole, uh, the whole of uh, you know Durin's folk section at the end of Appendix A included this enormous dilation, which was like a retelling of Chapter One of The Hobbit from Gandalf's point of view. Um, it was. Um, it was a long time, right? <laughs> so, so he was doing all that stuff and running all the languages and calendars and all those things. Uh, Tolkien finds, as he admitted, he finds the writing up of these things, you know, sort of only too attractive. He, he found the the attraction of it almost almost dangerous in the sense that it could it could divert him, you know, from other things. Um, so we know he has this appendix writing uh, uh, impulse to to fill out the story by including lots of lore and background material. Um, so again, the maps, the Embarcanta, seems to be part of that impulse. So their presence doesn't mess with our meta-narrative, right? Then we get to the annals, these early annals of Valinor, and my question is, what the heck is this? What is Tolkien doing? Or, or rather, to ask it a different way, why is Tolkien doing this? What's What's the point? Can we? Uh, how can our picture, our meta narrative of Tolkien's conception of the Silmarillion at this time, how can that picture um, accommodate the the earliest annals of Valinor? Well, one theory immediately presents itself, right? And that's basically that it's the same. This is this is this is another example of that appendix writing impulse, right? Um, this is him just kind of giving lore. Um, uh, so it's like the map making, right? It's part of the creative process. Um, we know that when he was writing things, he used to sketch out notes and, and, and write tables and stuff. I mean, those of you who have, uh, uh, who have read the History of the Lord of the Rings books um, will remember that... Um, he includes, you know, sort of elaborate... He makes up... As he's writing, he makes up elaborate tables uh, to sort of show, like, where the Black Riders... You know, like, the thinking about that whole sequence in the middle of book one, right, when Frodo uh, is running from the Black Riders and they're split up and Gandalf is coming in and, and you know, so he has, you know, whole charts of, like, on each day which Black Riders are where and where Gandalf is and all that kind of thing. So just kind of keeping track of all this stuff, you know, and, and, and wanting to kind of lay it out and work out the chronology. Maybe that's it, right? So again, so it's, so it's just like the map making, it's, it's, it's this same kind of appendix writing impulse. Um, yeah, James is suggesting that uh, uh, he's, he's working on this timeline to fill in the chronological details in the same way as the map fills up the spatial details. That, that, um, that, seems, that seems very plausible. Um, okay, so... Um, and this theory gets a more, you know, seems to be supported when we look not only at the primary text itself, but at that first set of notes that Christopher Tolkien gives us when he shows us the, the, that set of revisions that Tolkien did. Um, let's, let's look at those for a minute. So here's a, here's a, here's a chart, uh, that I made of the, um, um, not all, but many of those dates and the changes. So the left-hand side is the first draft, of the of the annals and the years that he gave them, and the second 
column is the uh, uh, is the revised dates. Uh, now it shifts as uh, Tolkien uh, shifts from uh, Valian years to years of the sun, um, which you'll remember one Valian year equals ten years of the sun. Um, so okay, so here's how it first worked. So the Teleri were on the shores of Beleriand originally from 2000 to 2100, right? Um, you see what that means? The Teleri were on the shores of Beleriand for a thousand years. You know, earth years, middle earth years, years, what we would consider years. So they were there for a thousand years originally, and then they went to Tal Arisea and stayed there for another thousand years until Erisea, until finally, after 2,000 entire years, it took the Teleri, in that initial conception, 2,000 years to get from when they arrived on the coast of Beleriand to when they finally arrived uh, in Valinor and began to settle at Alquilande, right? That's a long time. But anyway, okay, then then, uh, uh, centuries later, well, millennia later, seven more millennia later, um, we have finally the uh, the release of the unchaining of Melkor, and the uh, um, and the leading to the destruction of the trees there on twenty nine ninety two one. Yeah, I, I I I you know Yana, you're absolutely right. The time their time frame is different from ours. I mean, it might my, my you know two thousand years sounds like a lot to humans, less so to elves, even less so presumably to the Valar. So. It's not that that's absurd, right? There's nothing intrinsically impossible or, or even necessarily improbable about that. Um, but it is kind of remarkable. Nancy Fosberg very sensibly points out, I guess if you want to explain why their language and culture is different, it's a sensible timeline. Uh, yes, you do need to have a, a significant amount of time apart, right? Um, I mean, uh, one group of elves isn't going isn't gonna to form, you know, have their language deviate to such an extent if they're only away for, you know, 10, 15 years, right? So you, you got it. So, you know, 2,000 years. Okay. All right. Fine. And yeah, Philip, I agree. Uh, Philip says, we thought 40 years in the wilderness was bad. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay. So, that, so, so they get to Valinor. Then seven millennia later, the trees are destroyed. So this means from 2000, the date up here when the Teleri arrived at the shores of Beleriand is, is basically the same time that the Noldor and uh, those who will someday uh, be named the Vanyar um, arrive in Valinor. So the elves in general have been in Valinor for 9,000 years before Melkor is released. Um, okay, so then you notice how his initial schema here, right? His initial schema basically put all of the events, the major events of the culmination of this period, of this, epo- of this epoch, um, one year apart, right? The destruction of the trees, the next year the rebellion of Feanor, then the kinslaying, the doom of Mandos, the burning of the ships, the arrival and the camping at, at Lake Mithrim, the battle under stars and the death of Feanor, and the capture of Maedros and his imprisonment on Thangorodrum. So that, all of those things happen one valiant year apart. Um, so if you just kind of look at the pattern of the numbers, right, um, and you don't actually think about sort of translate it into a living reality too much. But we just, just look at the pattern, you can see, right? Long stretches of time. Um, Toler, you know, the Teleri take 2,000, you know, 2,000 Earth years to get there. The, the, you know, so we got centuries and millennia going on, 
and then this you know this big gap in which everybody's happy and the trees are uh, in in bloom and everything's awesome, and then everything goes to pieces and we have a rapid progression within ten years after all of these centuries and millennia within ten valiant years everything is changed right and everything is new so you can see the overall shape of that that sort of makes sense as a first draft then he revises it and you notice what he does right when we look at the changes it seems to me fairly simple to sort of perceive the narrative impulse behind these changes right or at least, I mean, again, I don't know what the impulse was behind it, that is, I can't read Tolkien's mind, but we can see how it does work as a narrative, right? The first thing we do is we make a radical change. Instead of staying on the shores of Valerian for a hundred valiant years, they've stayed for ten valiant years. We've reduced it by a factor of ten, order of magnitude, right? So it's only one of our centuries that they stayed on the shores of Valerian. And then they go to Tal Erisea, but note when they get to Tal Erisea, they're still a hundred valiant years there, right? And there, Nancy, I think, is that need, that desire to explain the deviation in the languages, right? Um, so they still stayed what, what to human beings would seem like a long time on the shores of Beleriand, but to elves would seem like a small time, and to Ossé, presumably, a time all too short. Um, but then they still go to t- they still remain in Tall Erisea for a thousand years. You can see the narrative significance of that, right? The Teleri linger on the shores of Beleriand, but they don't settle there, really, right? I mean, I, you know, of course, Cured in the Shipwright does, um, but the, but you, you Staying for ten valiant years, you couldn't call that. You can call that tarrying, but you, you wouldn't call that settling. However, they settle in Tall Erisea. This is the island that is Elven home, right? The Lonely Isle, um, and the that the kind of belonging that elves have, and how they return to it, uh, you know, in the end later on. The the connection between elves and Tall Erisea is much more significant, and so having them dwell there in a way that really makes it sort of their place, and even sort of an elvish place in general um, uh, so deeply, it makes sense that they would stay there. They, they do not merely tarry at Tol Arisea. So, okay, all right, we can see how, so that both the similarity and the difference there in those first two steps um, makes makes sense, right? And you can see how, um, I guess how I would describe this, or what it looks like to me, is that you can see him wanting to refine the timeline. The first that first timeline is very simplistic. That is, it's the the years are in big chunks, right? Hundred, hundred, one, 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 one. Is it basically right? Hundred, hundred, gap, one, 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 one. Is what we see there, right? And again, proportionally, that works. You can see that, but 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 it doesn't actually. Um, you know, there's 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 not much differentiation. It doesn't really. Uh, you know, there's, it's, it's not all that thoughtful, really. This shows a little bit more narrative investment, right? Um, and so they get to Valinor, they finally arrive in Valinor, it takes them a Valian year to pack, you know, a tall Arisea and get to Valinor, and they arrive in Valinor in 2111. Um, now, the destruction of the trees still happens at about the same time, but not quite. Why? Why have we shifted from 2990 to 2998? Or rather, what is, the, what, is the, uh, what is the impact of that? We can see his desire 
his, he has made clearly the choice to contract that further. Again, that initial impulse, century, century, one year, one year, one year, one year, is still falling, but basically he's clearly decided that's not nearly contracted enough. Again, the, the proportions work, but when you actually think about this, that there's seriously, there's a Middle-earth century between the destruction of the trees and you know the when the when the Noldor are settling down in Beleriand, that seems I know elves are not in a hurry, but that seems really unhurried, right? And even even you know, sort of looking at the rest of these things, look I mean, oh yes, these are all one year apart, right? Which in this schema would sort of seem like the minimum that you could put, and yet ten years. So like seriously, it was ten years? Ten years of the sun between the kinslaying and the doom of Mandos, right? When they sailed up and had the doom of... And then another ten years from when the doom of Mandos was passed until the burning of the ships? We're not even the crossing of the Helcaraxa, right? We haven't begun the crossing of the Helcaraxa. That'll be another ten years. Um, or more. Twenty years, quite possibly. Um, so, that's... Um, that's a long time. And you can see that he's decided that that was too long. Right, so he contracts the entire time from the destruction of the trees through the end of this whole section is now only three valiant years in its entirety. Uh, so a total of three decades from the uh, from the destruction of the trees through when things get established. That's still leisurely, but it it's you can see the uh, you can see the direction. <laughs> yeah, Mar- Mark Ingram says it's certainly not hot pursuit of the Silmarils. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It doesn't. Uh, uh, it, it wouldn't seem to uh, convey the kind of urgency that Feanor really seemed to be uh, seemed to be uh, um, uh, 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 in favor of there. But we're getting closer to it, right? Now, notice we're still a year... So he's shifted to using years of the sun because, of course, those are only one-tenth as long. Uh, so the kinslaying, the doom of Mandos, the burning of the ships, camp in Mithram are all one or two solar years apart instead of Valian years. That's still longish, actually, it kind of seems to me. Um, that is, I can understand the uh, the... Uh, the Teleri taking an entire valley in year to pack up from Tol Arisea and get to Valinor. Because, I mean, I've packed house before, and when you've lived in a place for a thousand years, it takes forever uh, to pack. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I totally get that. Um, I, I, I could easily see that requiring a decade. Um, but from the kinslaying, Right, so you're 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 sailing out in the ships that you've just stolen from the people whom you attacked. Right, so you're probably not going to tarry long, right, in that neighborhood. And do you go up? Mando still takes a calendar year to get around to delivering his doom. Right, that's still not an instantaneous response. Um, yeah, James. I mean, James says it really well. James Lieback says, uh, "I have to admit that even the second compressed timeline doesn't feel like it matches the narrative for me." I I agree. It's um, it's it's still not, I think, quite enough. Um, but it's well, it's at least kind of moving in the right direction, right? Uh, uh, you can see that 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 impulse towards towards compression. In other words. What we're seeing here, and this, you know, we know this is just the earliest version. He's going to come back and he's going to revisit this later on. The point is 
just when we look at those revisions of dates, we can see the narrative kind of moving it along, right? We can see him thinking it through, you know, sort of more thoroughly, right? Okay, so what would this actually translate? You know, how could I put dates on this and make a timeline uh, for these narrative events? The point is, all of that stuff would seem to support the idea that these annals are essentially... Um, that these annals are, are, are essentially uh, um, um, appendix material, right? As we were discussing. You know, again, so he was... Uh, he uses the maps to make his stories real visually, right? Um, to sort of uh, uh, become real in space. And here he's making them real in time, right? Okay. All right. I can see that. But I have one problem with this. Right. This was my fir- that was my first theory too. Um, in fact, that was kind of the I had always lazily kind of adopted that theory. Like that's the category, the vague category in which I'd always kind of put the annals in my own mind. Um, that they were it's like the tale of years, right? Appendix B of uh, of the Lord of the Rings. But as I was reading rereading the annals, especially again in the context of this meta-narrative that we've been um, that we've been discussing, I became a little bit uncomfortable with it, in some ways. In my mind, there's a drawback to this theory. And that is the prose. I... Remember the tale of years, right? The tale of years is a real timeline. That's the kind of... the In my mind, that's kind of the model. Not only because it's the one I knew first, but but that's sort of a pure, just attaching years to the events. And the actual telling of the events in the, you know, the prose part of the timeline is, doesn't have to be that detailed, right? All you need is a sentence, sometimes a really short sentence, right? Like Bilbo Baggins born, for instance, right? Um, but even when you get a longer sentence to describe the event, all you still have to do is just identify the event. This thing happened here, right? Look what we get in the annals. In 2993, it is said they came to a place where a high rock stands above the shores, and there stood either Mandos or his messenger, and spoke the doom of Mandos. For the kinslaying he cursed the house of Feanor, and to a less degree all who followed them, or shared in their emprise, unless they would return to abide the doom and pardon of the Valar. But if they would not... Then should evil fortune and disaster befall them, and ever from treachery of kin towards kin, and their oath should turn against them, and a measure of mortality should visit them, that they should be lightly slain with weapons, or torments, or sorrow, and in the end fade and wane before the younger race. And much else he foretold darkly that after befell, warning them that the Valar would fence Valinor against their return. That doesn't sound like Appendix B. Right? That's not the tale of years. This is not how you write the tale of years. Right? If he were just writing the tale of years, if he were really just doing the, like, hey, let me explore the chronology. Right? Let me lay, let me just map this thing out. Right? If that's what he were doing, this would be 2993, Doom of Mandos. Right? I mean, what else needs to be said? Maybe you give a little bit more detail. But this is a retelling. Right? I mean, this is, this is the, I mean, not only... Think not only of the thickness of this, that is, the amount of detail, um, the the way in which the entire doom is being spelled out, but think of the, the 
prose style of it. In 2993, it is said they came to a place where a high rock stands above the shores, and there stood either Mandos or his messenger, and spoke the doom of Mandos. And to a less degree, all who followed them or shared in their emprise. Who uses the word emprise in a summary like that? I mean, there's a, there's a performative element to this. Remember when we were looking at the sketch, and one of the arguments I was making way back in our first class was that how the sketch wasn't, or at least did not begin, as a literary text, right? It didn't seem to... It wasn't attempting style, exactly. It was just a summary, right? Just the facts. Um, this isn't just the facts! This is polished. It's... Uh, exactly, Nancy. It kind of feels like another revision. That's exactly what I'm thinking, too. Um... Yeah, Gwendolyn says it's not really a history textbook. Uh, it's like a, a bardic song or something like that. I agree, Gwendolyn. It has more of that kind of flair. Um, certainly not, not even just a history textbook, but bullet points, right? Which was what you would think, a, you know, sort of annals or, or, you know, something where that kind of appendix thing, like uh, Appendix B of The Lord of the Rings, that's what the kind of thing you would expect. So, Moments like this, and there's a bunch of them, right? This happens a lot in the annals, where we're not just giving a, a, a bullet list, we're doing a full retelling of those bits in the story, right? So this begins to make me feel uncomfortable to say, well, hang on, let's not be too rash, right? Can we really say that this is just appendix? Um, now, there's a possibility, right? maybe he's just getting carried away. Now, we've seen this happen before, right? It seemed to happen with the sketch. It seemed to happen with the Quinta, right? We start off kind of business-like, but then as he goes along, I mean, you know, it's hard to... I mean, I've confessed that I myself do this all the time where I start writing an outline and pretty soon I'm doing a draft, right? So, you know, we've see, we see Tolkien doing this kind of thing. Uh, you know, it, it happens. Maybe he, he meant it initially just to be an appendix thing, but as he started, to, it just kind of you know, took over, right? And and kind of expanded into something else. Possibly, possibly, but I'm still not really convinced. And I'm not convinced because it's like this pretty much from the beginning. Um, so, yeah, so check this out here. Sorry. Um, it's, a, it's a much earlier passage. The Valiant Year 2000 is accounted the noontide of the Blessed Realm, and the full season of the mirth of the gods. Then did, Marta, did Varda make the stars and set them aloft, and thereafter some of the Valarindi strayed into the Middle-earth, and among them was Melian, whose voice was renowned in Valmar. But she returned not thither for many ages, and the nightingales sang about her in the dark woods of the western lands." At the first shining of the sickle of the gods which Varda set above the north as a threat to Morgoth and an omen of his fall, the elder children of Iluvatar awoke in the midmost of the world. They are the elves. Hear it again? It's not just that it's a lot of prose. It's not just that. It's... Look at the extraneous detail. Extraneous in a pure bullet point sense. It's, you know, you don't... Un unneeded for bullet points, right? Um, 2000, noontide of the Blessed Realm, right? 
Thank you. Read the Quinta if you want more information, right? Just like you don't retell the whole Lord of the Rings in Appendix B. You know, you just you just say, like, Frodo arrives in Bree. And then if you want more information about Frodo arriving in Bree, you're welcome to go back and reread that chapter in The Fellowship of the Ring, right? Um, but, it's, it's, but it's not just that. You look so it, extraneous details, as I said, like the business about Melian, right? Okay, Melian goes to Middle Earth. All right, fine, right? That's good, right? Nice to know that. Nice to know when that happened, uh, especially since we don't ever get told that anywhere else. So that's kind of cool. Um, whose voice was renowned in Valmar? A little more information we absolutely need. But she returned not thither for many ages, and the nightingales sang about her in the dark woods of the western lands. That's totally unnecessary. Right? Okay. Again, I, 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 you know, and please understand, right? I'm not saying it's a bad... I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying it makes me question the genre. That's not how you talk in a bullet list. And, Nancy, I agree with you. Uh, Nancy points out that, moreover, it's really vague about the timing for being a timeline. Um, yes, yes, it seems in some ways to fail of its office in that way as well, right? Um, it is not doing its office. Um... So, yeah, and and the business of the sickle of the, I mean the the rhetorical momentum of this sentence. This is so good, right? At the first shining of the sickle of the gods, which Varda set above the north as a threat to Morgoth and an omen of his fall, the elder children of Iluvatar awoke in the midmost of the world. They are the elves, right? What a wonderful piece of Tolkienian rhetoric that sentence is, right? Gorgeous. Um, But again, not the kind of sentence. Just It's just not how you talk when you're only interested in giving a summary in order to list the chronology. So, like I say, I first ask, why is he writing the annals? What is going on? And when I have my first answer, which made me comfortable for many years, um, that it's just appendix material, the closer I look at it, the less comfortable I am with that. It begins to sound like a revision, Nancy, as you said before. Okay, so why is he writing it, then? What's the point of... I mean, if it's literary in form, like it's not just a private thing, it's meant to have an audience? Sounds like it's meant to have an audience, in some sense? Um that this was not written just to be an appendix, just to be an outline. So why is it written? For whom is it written? So, okay, if theory one is that this is, um, a, this is uh, appendix material, if we put that theory aside then for a second and say, okay, if it's not, then what could it be? Well, then another theory, of course, is that it's a replacement for the Quenta. This wouldn't be the first time that he's shifted gears, right? Maybe, maybe this represents him having done the Quenta and saying, you know, actually, maybe I'd want to do this in a different mode, right? Maybe it would be cool, actually, to attach the chronology to it. So maybe this is, maybe this is going to be a reworking of the Quenta, right? He's going to upgrade the Quenta to include more detail, Right? That's the idea, maybe. It's, again, that's one other possible theory, right? 
it would be in keeping with the pattern that we've seen, right? Hey, I'm going to start at the beginning again, and I'm going to redo it, except in a different way, right? That's how the plot summary genre came around in the first place. So, possible, possible, um, you know, that he would rework and revise the thing instead of continuing, or instead of being like, okay, now let's get back to those epic poems. He's like, no, let me redo the Quenta in a different mode. Okay, you know, right? That 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 kind of sounds like our guy, right? He would he would probably do that. Um. So, the sort of concept that this is designed to be a replacement for the Quenta, you know, sort of the next iteration, works. But, um, but it's, um, yeah, Carita, uh, uh, Gwendolyn was saying, uh, it's almost as if he's writing as an elf. It sounds like how you'd expect elvish minds to work. Maybe, and Carita's saying it's her favorite theory, that it's a written record of the oral history handed down by the elves. Oh, getting warmer. You guys are jumping ahead a little bit, but but that's... Uh, man, I, 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 I can see that. I can see that. Um, there's another factor there, though. Okay, but hang on. How do we know this is not... I think we can disprove that this is a reworking of the Quinta, Right? Um, that this is just replacing the... that it's meant to replace the Quenta. Certainly in this form, as he's writing it. Um, and that's... It's so darn short. I mean, yeah, there are these bits with really nice prose. I mean, that sentence is awesome. But it's one sentence. And there's a whole lot of really good material in the Quenta that gets totally shorted, right? Uh, a couple examples. In the valiant year 500, Morgoth destroyed by deceit the lamps which Aule made for the lighting of the world, and the Valar, save Morgoth, retired to the west and built their Valinor, between the outer seas that surround the earth and the great seas of the west, and on the shores of these they piled great mountains, but the symmetry of land and sea was first broken in those days. See, um... See how inadequate that is? Notice what he's done here. He alludes to the story of the making of the lamps and of their destruction. Indeed, as Christopher Tolkien points out in his commentary, the phrase by deceit, right? Morgoth destroyed by deceit the lamps, seems even to suggest a reinstituting of the ice towers that uh, is described in the Embarcanta that was initially told in the story in the Book of Lost Tales and which is manifested in the maps. Remember map four with the two puddles, right? Um, before the world gets before the world gets reshaped. So you get the, the, two, the two puddles where the lamps used to be which make those small inland seas. Um, so, okay, I mean, again, we, 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 we can see that, but Morgoth destroyed by deceit the lamps? Seriously? That's your new version of that story? Even the, the briefness destroyed, like how destroyed by deceit? What, what, how did, what went on there? Um, that can't be a replacement for the stories that came before. It's not even, it's not even as much detail. We get way more in the sketch, much less the Quinta, right? So, if we are to us to believe that the annals are being designed as the story retold in a new mode, revised and retold in a new mode, um, which again, 
is theoretically cons- is theoretical theoretically probable, even if we grant that, um, I can't imagine this level of compression coming in. The sketch was compressed, but there was an excuse for it, right? It was only ever just a sketch. The Quenta is still kind of compressed because compression is like the new part of the, but it's still expanded, right? To say we're going to go, we're going to take it, but we're going to we're going to squeeze it down even further to a way where it's not even really fully intelligible. I mean, if we didn't know that story about the ice pillars, there's no way we could guess it from that sentence. This would not stand on its own. Not well at all. Um, and even his description of the, uh, you know, but, but the symmetry of land and sea was first broken in those days. Uh, really? How? How was the symmetry broken? Even in the even in the sketch in the Quinta, it describes how the sea was widened and the land was pushed, right? Which we saw illustrated so nicely in that you know that that arc of of, of land, um, uh, you know, Middle Earth being pushed away from Valinor. Um, but he doesn't even he just mentions it, right? Um, he just mentions it. Um, and, oh, Philip, we know how it was symmetrical before. We see it in the pictures, right? Diagram one. Back in the chapter, in the Embarcanta chapter, look at that thing. It's gorgeously symmetrical. The whole landmass, right? The high point in the middle, and then down to the inner seas, and then the higher point, and then, again, you know, out to the western and eastern lands, and then dropping down. It's beautiful, right? Works great. Um, anyway, again, the point is... What again? What is this thing? It seems like it's it's neither it's neither it's neither fish nor fowl, right? On the one hand, it's way too florid and way too uh, pretty, right? Way too full, um, way too self-consciously rhetorical to be mere summary, right? To be mere summary appendix dateline material. But at the same time, it's way too brief. Um, and passes over too much, uh, and not. And again, it's it's not the fact that it skips things; it's the fact that it um, it's the fact that it uh, 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 alludes to them and doesn't tell the story. Alludes to them in ways that would make that story inexplicable and mysterious to anybody who was only reading the annals. Again, like the destruction of the lamps business, right? So I feel like there's no way, there's no way he could have attended, intended the annals to be a replacement for the Quenta, right? Another example. Morgoth now completed his designs, and with the aid of Ungoliante, out of Arvalin, stole back into Valinor, and destroyed the trees, escaping in the gathering dark northward, where he sacked the dwellings of Feanor, and carried off a host of jewels, among them the Silmarils, and he slew Finway, and many elves, and thus defiled Valinor, and began slaughter in the world. Wait, seriously? That's the darkening of Valinor. We're going to do the darkening of Valinor in one sentence in a small part of one sentence. With the aid of Angoliante, out of Arvalin, stole back into Valinor and destroyed the trees. Thank you very much. Right? Escaping in the gather... Remember that that was the first passage that I quoted from the Quenta in my attempt to illustrate how the sketch of the mythology had been made into a literary thing. Right? Um, that gorgeous description of the destruction of the trees um, by Angoliant and, and, and Morgoth um, 
wonderful, right? No, no, we're going to cut all that, and we're going to. But again, even this passage, um, in my mind, this passage shows both problems, right? It it illustrates the whole neither 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 fish nor fowl thing, right? On the one hand, that is way too brief to be a substitute for this story. There is no way. There is no way that Tolkien is going to be content with that. Stole back into Valinor and destroyed the trees. No way he's going to be content with that as the as the sort of the 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 embodiment of this story. But at the same time, it's more. This whole sentence is more. Not only more than you would ex- than you would get than you would expect in a Tale of Years style appendix block. Um, it, but it's also stylistically different. And he slew Finway and many elves, and thus defiled Valinor and began slaughter in the world. Right in the tale of years, you would never be like uh, twenty nine ninety slaughter begun in the world. Right, it's just not how you talk in that kind of a timeline. Right, um, much of the rest of it kind of sounds timeliney. Right, but the end doesn't sound timeliney. So, um, again, what is this? Right, what what um, um. What is he doing in this text, and why is he doing it? Is he just not able to make up his mind? Is it what what on earth is happening here? Um, what's he doing, and why is he doing it? How can we reconcile these different observations? Right, too polished to be chronological notes, too brief and too elusive to be a replacement for the quenta. Who shall read this riddle for us? Right. Where do you find the answer? In the Anglo-Saxon appendix. Of course. Of course. Um, Here's the sentence, as I was puzzling over this. Here's the one sentence that got me really excited. From Christopher Tolkien at the very beginning of the Anglo-Saxon appendix. The first version given here is certainly the oldest, and is perhaps earlier than the modern English. Of course! Of course! Now we know why he wrote this. He wrote it because he wanted to write an Anglo-Saxon version, not just a translation of the Quentin. Remember, he begun that, too. Right? A full Anglo-Saxon translation of the Quentin. No, 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 no. This is a different thing. Right? He He's writing an Anglo-Saxon... Ah, okay. Now, let's... let's uh, so let's go back. Armed with that idea, right? Let's go backwards. Okay, so here's the beginning of the Anglo-Saxon uh, uh, version, and then we have the beginning of the modern English translation of the text. Okay. Um, so now, uh, those of you who don't know any Anglo-Saxon, it's okay. You can actually, if you you look at them in parallel, that's why I, I, I had them put on the same uh, slide here, so you can look at them both at once. Um, watch how this works now. And uh, uh, forgive my translation. My translation of Anglo-Saxon is always a bit rough if I haven't been practicing, which I haven't much lately. Theos Yesegen. Theos Yesegen weyarth arrest on bokum yeset of Pengalod, tham uthwitan of Gondolina. Ar thamtha heo abrokin wurda. So, okay. Thes Yesegen weyarth arrest on bokum yeset. These and the annals of Beleriand were written by Pengalod the Wise, were, 
on Bokum Yeset, right? Set in books, right? Of Pengalon, of Pengalod, Tham Uthwitem, Pengalod, that wise one, of Gondolina, right? Uh, of Gondolin, before its fall, Arthamtha Heo Abrokenward, that before it was broken, Gondolin, before Gondolin was broken. And Sithen at Siri at Siri Yeona's Huthe. Uh, and after at Syrian's Haven, okay, and at Tafrabel on Tol Erasean, that is Anatia. After Thamtha Heeft Westcom. And at Tavrabel in Tol Erasea, after his return unto the West. Hey, wait a second. That is Anatia? That's not in there. Huh. Okay. Anyway, let's keep going. Uh, where were we at? Uh, after Thamtha Heeft Westcom. Heoware Thar Yorad and Yathid of Alfwina, Thamtha Yelfa Eriol Yenemedin. And there, seen Heoware Thar Yorad and Yathid. So, uh, uh, sorry, where are we down here? And there, seen and translated by Ariel of Lathian, that is Alfwina of the Angelkun. It was Yorad and Yathid of Alfwina, Thamtha Elfa Eriol Yenemden. So the Anglo Saxon says, um, it was there read and translated by Alfwina, that one whom the elves named Ariel. But the modern English says they're seen and translated by Ariel of Lathian. That is Alfwina of the Engelkun. Okay? Alright. And then here begin the Annals of Valinor. Uh, whereas in the Anglo Saxon we get Frumshaft, which means the, the first creation, right? The first uh, the first shaping. Her arrest workte iluvatar, that is Eelfader, or the Heovenfader, or the Beorchtfader. I'll think. At the beginning of Luvatar, that is, All Father made all things. Okay. So, you see what's happening here? That business at the end is super interesting. Right? One observation we can clearly, when we look at these things side by side, one thing we can clearly see. They are not simply translations of each other. Right? we can tell because that puppy's reversed at the end, right? It was translated, it was read and translated by Alfwina. So Pengalod's book, Pengalon of Gondolin, wrote this book um, before Arthamtha Heo a broken word, before it was broken, and then afterwards at the at the uh, at Syrian's Haven, Right, and at Tabrabella at Tolerosea. So he wrote all this stuff, right? And then it was read and translated by whom? It depends on whom you ask. The Anglo Saxon calls the guy Alfwina and mentions that the elves named him Ariel. The modern English 
says it was translated by Ariel of Lathian, which is, you'll remember, the elvish name for England. That is Alfwina of the Engelkun. Engelkun is a really interesting word, right? Because that's an Anglo-Saxon word that has slipped in here. Alfwina of the Engelkun. Okay, so they're reversed. They're not just translations of each other. So when Tolkien is writing these, he's not simply performing some kind of exercise, right? This is not pure and simple geekery, right? Like, hey, I'll do it. I've written this thing. I'm going to translate it into Anglo-Saxon because I can, and I think that's fun, right? It's not just that, right? There's this part of the creative process. Right? This is told from a different perspective and to a different audience. Right? Um, exactly, Gwendolyn. Yes, he's, uh, Gwendolyn says he's validating the legend. He's saying the Anglo-Saxons actually got this story from the elves. Yeah, and he's, he's showing that here. Right? We have the modern English translation seems to be an elvish perspective on it. Right? This is like the elvish version of it. Uh, the Anglo-Saxon is, of course, Alf Winna's version of it, right? Told from humans to other Anglo-Saxons. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and again, you can see Alf Winna, that the elves name Ariel, compared to Ariel of Lathian, you know, Alf Winna of Angelkun, as he was called, you know, in his little dialect. So, okay. So they're parallel texts... They're not mere translations. Now, which came first? Christopher mentions at the very beginning that that possibility that the Anglos, the, this first Anglo-Saxon text is actually earlier than the modern English. That it is possible that Tolkien composed this, began composing this, as an Anglo-Saxon text, and translated it from the Anglo-Saxon into, into modern English. And as I said in the last, you know, we were talking about the last slide, for me that was like a light bulb, right? And I immediately latched on to that for a couple reasons. Um, one, because there were a couple moments where, I mean, I talked about sort of the rhetoric and stuff like that. There were a couple places where it sounded weird, and one of them was here. At the beginning, Iluvatar, that is All Father, that is All Father. Made all things. No, but who calls him all father? Where have we heard that? That's not an elvish thing. The elves don't call him the all father, right? It's it's exactly yes, Michael. Yes, Arthur. It's Norse. Odin is called the uh, the All Father, absolutely. So no elves don't talk that way about Iluvatar. We've got no precedent for that. But you know who would talk about him that way? Anglo Saxons would talk about him that way. And as soon as you go back and you look at this in Anglo Saxon, of course, this is exactly how the Anglo Saxons would talk about him, right? Her arrest worked Iluvatar. That is Eälfader. Now, as again, as soon as I as I saw Eälfader, right after having seen Christopher Tolkien's note that this probably came first, I'm like, well, of course, that's why it says in the beginning that is 
Iluvatar, that is all father, right? You would do that if you were translating from the Anglo-Saxon into modern English. You would never have done that, just writing it in modern English as like a new Elvish version of this story, right? But going the other way around, you absolutely would do that. Okay, that now suddenly makes sense. And indeed, delightfully, we see he does even more, right? Um, that is, in fact, the modern English is, is understated. The Anglo-Saxon keeps going, right? Iluvatar, that is Eelfader, Otha Heovenfader, Otha Beorchtfader, Eelthing, right? Um, uh, so he's, he's the Allfather, he's Heavenfather, he's the Bright Father, right? So he's the Father of Light, he's the. Uh, we get all this. Um, um, we get all this extra stuff, right? This, this extra Anglo-Saxon imagery uh, to sort of identify and convey who this Iluvatar is, right? And who, who, who wrought all things, right? Who worked, uh, who arrest worked all things. Even that, at the beginning, Iluv- even if the Allfather weren't there, at the beginning, Iluvatar made all things, even that syntactically doesn't sound like a very elvish way of thinking. Think about how the Silmarillion begins, right? Uh, there was Eru, the one, right? Um, and by him was made all things. But in the beginning, Iluvatar made all things. That's a much more Anglo-Saxon. And those Frumsheaft, right? Um, that, that too, the, the first creation... Um, Iluvatar worked to think. That's that's yeah, okay, again, that's Anglo that's Anglo Saxon syntax, and we can see it coming through. So I am very ready to believe that the Anglo Saxon text came first and the modern English text came after. And that all of a sudden now this theory fits like a glove and it explains the mystery, right? So back to the big question. Why are you writing this, Tolkien? You've got a perfectly good Quenta going on, right? Okay, I get the I you want to do work out the chronology, but make a list, buddy, right? Why are you doing this? This is why he's doing this, right? He was doing this because this didn't start off as a modern English, hey, let me kind of do the Quenta halfway except awkwardly, and I'll do dates also, right? It's not that wasn't it. That's not what he did. Instead, what he did was sit down and start writing Alfwin's version of this in Anglo-Saxon. So it's another. We can fit that into the meta narrative easy, right? He's got the Quenta, accompanied by the epic poems. But that's not necessarily what we're going to get from Alfwinna. That's not necessarily what Alfwinna is going to bring back with him, right? Um, that's still all pretty elvish. The Quenta and the poetry. We do have the alliterative children of uh, of of Horin, right? So we got some uh, alliterative poetry going on. It could be that you know that that could easily become uh, you know that can easily be worked into the story, obviously, of like the Anglo-Saxon version of this of this lay that was composed by an Elvish bard or whatever. But so we we can we can accommodate we can accommodate some of it, but like the lay of Lathian, not Anglo-Saxon, right? It's just not right. It's just not the right form. Um, so. 
so we can see the conception. He wants to have... We, we knew, we, we talked about this before. We brief, well, I should say we briefly looked at this before. I alluded to the fact before that he's not abandoned the frame entirely, right? We still have the fundamental frame concept that this dude, who is now alternately Alf, Winna, and Ariel, depending on whom you ask, he comes to Tol Arisea, meets some of the elves, hears their stories, reads their books, apparently, uh, even and brings those stories back to England, and that's how these stories of the elves come back. So that frame is still in force, right? Okay, he's not abandoned it, but the Quenta doesn't have the frame, right? We, we have abandoned the whole Lost Tales thing, where the primary narrative is Ariel talking to the elves, and then they tell the stories, and so then we shift to storytelling, and we come back to Ariel in the frame. He's not doing that anymore. The Quenta doesn't contain any of that. All we get is the, that little footer, at the end of the Quenta, right? And all of this stuff was uh, told to Alfwina and Tol Arisea, and he brought it back to England, right? Um, so we, we, we're, we're sort of acknowledging the fact of the frame, but we don't actually have the frame. That seems to be... So, now, does this still work in, like, the appendix-like way? Do we still see him working out the dates and wanting to think through the chronology? Yes, absolutely. We still see that, right? No question that that's, that's got to be an element in why he's doing this as annals, right? As this sort of year-by-year progression. Um, but, but that's not the only itch he's scratching here. The itch he's scratching is the frame. Wither the frame! Since we lost it in The Lost Tales, but he's not abandoned it as a concept, it has to come in somewhere. So where it comes from is, or where, where, where it comes in is in this text. So he decides that there's an elvish book written by Pengalot of Gondolin, right? What is the book written by Pengalot of Gondolin? What did Pengalot of Gondolin write? What was on Bokom Yeset of Pengalot, Tham Uthwitan of Gondolina? The Quenta! The Quenta is Pengalod's book. That's the Elvish book, right? And it's got... It's got insertions, right? It's got inclusions. He also would likely record the poems, right? And this is the song that, you know, Maglor made of the, you know, about the kinslaying, right? And the, the tragedy of Al- at, at Alquilande. Um... Uh, yeah, yeah, okay, all right, okay. So, Pengalot of Gondolin wrote the Quenta. So now you see how he himself is developing the meta narrative of his story, right? Okay, so what he's written, the Quenta, and what he's not yet written, but he's totally going to get around to doing, unfortunately not, is the, the, the poems. Right? That stuff, that's Pengalot's work. But the whole thing is incomplete. Right? He's gotta he's gotta actually he wants to give the text that Ariel actually came back or excuse me, Alfwina whenever when when he's at home, what what Alfwina came back with. Right? So so because he didn't just bring back Pengalod's book, I mean, first of all, what good is that gonna be? Right? Uh because it's written in Elvish, right? So maybe I mean Alfwina can learn the language. Uh but he's not just gonna come back and, and reread out of this. He's got to translate it. Um, uh, so it's got to be Anglo-Saxonized. And so this text would therefore appear to be, again, at least this is how I fit this into this, this larger meta-narrative that we've been creating, this text is his version of what Alfwina wrote. Actually what Alfwina wrote, right? 
Um, and he courteously writes a modern English version. But wait a second, he's not written the modern English version for our benefit. Had he done that, uh, first of all, I mean, goodness knows, he never published this thing, right? But it's not just for the benefit of his modern readers whose Anglo-Saxon, whose Anglo-Saxon is rusty that he did the modern English translation. You can tell by the reversal, right? This is not just modern English. This is perspective-shifted to the elves. So what is this text? The modern English text? The modern English text of the Annals of Valinor and the Annals of Beleriand is an elvish, must be, an elvish translation of Alfwina's text. So Alfwina reads Pangalod's book in Talarisea, and he's like, this is awesome. I'm going to write this stuff down so I can bring it home. So he writes an Anglo-Saxon book. Right? Oops, sorry. I just did a whole bunch of things. My apologies there. Um, so he writes an Anglo-Saxon book, right, year by year, trying to map it out so he can give the history of this stuff and keep this stuff, keep all the stories straight. And it's okay if it's elusive. It's okay if he just says Melkor destroyed by deceit the lamps. Right? Because he can still tell the story. Right? This isn't designed to be like the full... It's not a translation of Pengawad's book. Right? This is like the Cliff's Notes version of Pengawad's book because he's just, this is, it will enable him to bring it home and to keep these stories alive. It can be used as sort of like a base to tell the stories from. Mick, when you think about this as like a way to, 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 to transport those stories back to England and, and to be able to tell them to your Anglo-Saxon cronies totally makes sense, right? But he's writing this book in Tolarisea where he's got access to Pengalod's book, right? So he's got Pengalod's book and he's got his book and he's writing it down. And then what happens? Somebody, like maybe Pengalod or maybe uh, Rumil or somebody, sees the Anglo-Saxon book that, uh, that Ariel is writing. And they're like, hey, Ariel, what you doing? And he's like, hey, man, I'm just translating. I'm, you know, writing some notes so I can bring these stories back to my people so that they can know. And Pengalot or Rumil or whoever it is is like, hey, man, that's really cool. Can I do a translation of your thing? Because this is a fascinating opportunity for like an anthropological experiment where we can sort of see how you, a human being, sort of rendered our stories, right? And so he labels it that way, right? They're seen and translated by Ariel of Lathian, right? This stuff is by Ariel of Lathian. That guy, you might have heard, he called himself Alfwina of the Angelkun, whoever the heck they are. We don't even know who they are, so we just give his name for it. He called them the Angelkun, whoever that is, right? But anyway, that dude, we call him, we call him uh, Ariel of Lathian. He wrote this. Isn't this fun, everybody? Right? So, so like, the, you know, the elf is like, this, the, you know, it's like, hey, 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 fellow elves, isn't this cool? Look at the, what this human did, right? It's our stories, and he's written them down, and, and it's, this is neat, right? So it's retranslated back into Elvish. That's my theory. That's my theory for the modern English translation. Isn't it neat? Isn't this cool? What a fun idea. So then, in theory, the complete Silmarillion, right, would now be the Quenta uh, plus the poems, all the poems, like six or seven epic poems, plus the annals in Anglo-Saxon, and then the modern English slash Elvish translation of the annals, and the Embarcanta and the maps and the diagrams as appendix material. This is great, right? Um... I remember 
Humphrey Carpenter, in Tolkien's biography, when Humphrey Carpenter is talking about that period of time in the early 50s, when Tolkien was sort of facing this crisis in getting The Lord of the Rings published, the problem was he really wanted to publish The Silmarillion and The Lord of the Rings together. And um, Alan and Unwin, <clears throat> who were the Hobbit publishers and the people he'd been working with you know, for a while, didn't want to do it. And they were trying to be polite. right? They're like, um, let's just stick with The Lord of the Rings. How about that? And he didn't want that. He wanted to publish The Silmarillion too. And so he had this period of time when he was flirting with HarperCollins as well. Um, that's if you've read his famous letter to Milton Waldman. That's who Milton Waldman was. He was one of the editors at HarperCollins, and the guy he was talking to there to try to sell The Silmarillion to them along with The Lord of the Rings. Um, so, uh, so his famous letter is his sort of long summary, long prose summary of the Silmarillion material um, uh, in order to, to sort of explain it to him. Anyway, so, okay. So, uh, he he has this flirtation with Harper Collins. In that context, Humphrey Carpenter points out that um, at this time, Tolkien, when he was asked how long is... Uh, this Silmarillion, because he, he, you know, he admitted it wasn't done, and they were saying his the publishers were all asking him how how long is it going to be, and he says uh, about the same length as the Lord of the Rings. Humphrey Carpenter comments on this as merely an example of Tolkien being inaccurate. Right, having sort of grandiose ideas, and but 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 in reality, he didn't have anything like, you know, a thousand pages of material, right? Um, because he's comparing the length of the eventually published Silmarillion to the length of the Lord of the Rings, and indeed, the published Silmarillion is very substantially shorter than the published Lord of the Rings. But this Silmarillion, the Uber Silmarillion that we have been sort of conceiving as we've been reading through this book, Quenta, plus all the poems, plus full Anglo-Saxon and modern English annals, plus fun appendix material with the Ambarcanta and various maps and diagrams. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm, yeah, that, that's totally going to be the length of the Lord of the Rings. Easy. I mean, look look how long the Lay of the Children of Hurin and uh, the Lay of Lathian are, and they're not finished. And they're only two of the poems. That might have been... So, if this indeed is what he, how he was picturing, you know, what the Silmarillion was in his head, then, yeah, it was, it was long. It was, it, was very, it was very substantial. I'm not saying that I necessarily think he would have attempted to get the full Anglo-Saxon annals translated. I think that probably his publishers would have balked at that, perhaps. Uh, but still, anyway, it's, we can, I, I, I do think, um, again, thinking back to that, uh, that moment in Carpenter's biography, that it's a little bit unfair to assume, or not unfair, it's uh, rash to assume that when Tolkien is talking about publishing the Silmarillion in the early 50s, um, that book that he was planning to publish would have looked exactly like, ultimately, uh, what the Silmarillion was finally published as. Um, so, uh, uh, anyway, this uh, this is pretty cool. 
right? This is this. So um, I, 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 thinking this through, I, I went very quickly from being annoyed at the annals to being absolutely uh, rapturously delighted by the annals. It now makes all kinds of sense. Um, and it still serves that other appendix-oriented function, right? He does kind of kill two birds with one stone by choosing <clears throat> the annal as the genre of Alfwina's version of the story, he also does, and, and it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Doesn't it make sense that the human being would want to attach years to it? The elves in the Valar are content to be all vague, right? But, uh, but the human being would, uh, would really want to uh, uh, affix dates to this and sort this out and figure out how long these things all took. So that, that makes sense. And it does accomplish things, right? I mean, look at, um, look at the big picture. This, this, this really emerges here in the annals as it does not really in, uh, uh, in, in the Quenta. We can see that uh, uh, is kind of onto something here, right? And even as they came, the first ages of the world were ended. And these are reckoned as 30,000 years, or 3,000 years, of the Valar, whereof the first thousand was before the trees, and 2,000 save nine were years of the trees, or of the holy light, which lived after, and lives yet only in the Silmarils. And the nine are the years of darkening, or the darkening of Valinor. Um, notice how this... Uh, yeah, Kurita, I agree. The elves probably did have a word like herer uh, a long time, right? Uh, uh, yeah, that kind of hand-waving at vast expanses of time, which happens a lot in the Silmarillion, right? Um, um, there they dwelt for many ages, right? That's how elves talk. Um, whereas it's Elfwina who's like, okay, okay, right, but how many years per age, right? <laughs> how many years constitutes an age? Um, you almost... Uh, <clears throat> um, you almost get, I, I don't know, I mean, I would almost get the sense, I get thinking about it from this point of view, that maybe Alf Wynn is kind of making stuff up here, right? Um, that is to say, do we under, are we to understand that this is the final revelation of the actual precise time scale that was merely unspoken, right? It turns out that, you know, when, when he asks, the elves are like, well, one age... When we say one, when we say an age or for three ages, we mean precisely three hundred valiant years, right? No more, no less, right? Or is this Ariel saying, "Okay, let's uh, let's call that <clears throat> let's call that seven ages then, right? So seven hundred years, I'll hold you to that, right? I mean that that uh, that uh, that certainly seems to be. I, I don't. Know. I could. I could. I could buy into that. Um, the years of the trees or of the holy light. Of the holy light. Who talks like that? Elves don't talk like that. Anglo-Saxons talk like that. Right? Of the holy light. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Um, uh, <laughs> um, yes, Arthur, it does sort of suggest itself as a title for a uh, 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 a, a Silmaril parallel of the Christmas Carol, doesn't it? Um, oh, holy light. Yes, exactly. Anyway, okay, right. Um, but notice notice the picture that emerges here. Notice what what Alfwina has accomplished by putting numbers to it. Even sort of backing up and looking at the big picture here, 
he's able to show us the overall pattern as that pattern does not clearly emerge. So there were 30,000 solar years here from creation through the return of the Noldor to Middle-earth, right? And that we so we and we see how these how this time was proportioned. A thousand years is the time before the trees, the beginning time. Two thousand years, the time of the trees. So you can have you you, you get a fuller appreciation for twenty thousand years. The trees were shining in Valinor, right? Um, the total amount of prose taken up in the Quenta, describing that period of time, is quite short. Right, we don't clearly get that impression from the Quenta that the trees were shining in Valinor for almost exactly twice as long as the entire history of the Earth before that. Right, and then by contrast, all of this comes tumbling down in nine years at the end, and of course in the revised scale in three years. Right, so what took almost thirty thousand years of building and then of bliss is destroyed in 30 total uh, years of the sun. Um, And that, too, tells a story, or rather it tells the story in a very different, but in a very powerful way, right? Okay, so that's cool. So something, so the point here, again, is that what is being added here is not just the coolness factor, right, of Alfwina, of actually seeing what Alfwina brought with him back to England, but, um, you know, and sort of the thoroughness factor, kind of like the way that Tolkien drew the pages of the Book of Mazarbo, right, in order to sort of, you know, give it that, that, that sense, you know, and here's what it really looked like, that sense of authenticity. The whole aerial translation gives us more than that authenticity. It's not designed to replace the Quenta. It's designed to supplement the Quenta. It's to tell the story of the Quenta in a different way, but from a different point of view, and to give us a different view of it. Ariel's view of it. Elfwina's view of it. Um, And when we do, we see different things. Look at the ending. But towards the end of this time, as is elsewhere told, the gods made the sun and moon, and sent them forth over the world, and light came unto the hither lands, and men awoke in the east of the world, even at the first dawn. But with the first moonrise, Fingolfin set foot upon the north, for the moonrise came ere the dawn, even as Silpian of old bloomed ere Laurelin was ere Laurelin, and was the elder of the trees. But the first dawn shone upon Fingolfin's march, and his banners blue and silver were unfurled, and flowers sprang beneath his marching feet, for a time of opening and growth was come into the earth, and good of evil as ever happens. Um, and good of evil as ever happens. Yeah, yeah. Um, One thing, of course, that I would point out is simply the, uh, as is elsewhere told at the beginning, that phrase by itself would be enough, I would go so far as to say, to prove to me that this wasn't designed to supplant the Quenta, right? This is not the new and improved Quenta. It's clearly meant to be read in parallel with the Quenta because the Quenta is where it is elsewhere told, right? That the gods made the sun and moon. Well, of course, it's also elsewhere told in the in the Book of Lost Tales, but we've left that behind, right? The Quenta is the new 
and revised version of the Book of Lost Tales, right? Okay, so it's in the Quenta that the gods made the sun, that we're told about the gods making the sun of moon. Also the Ambarakanta, right? So it's told elsewhere twice, right? Um, but, um, anyway, um, that's, uh, that's another interesting piece of evidence. But we know this does have... Gwendolyn, I think you're right. It has a little bit more of an elvish ending here. Um, that is to say, it uh, it it it, <laughs> it sounds... Uh, it sounds a little bit more elvish. Um, I agree. I agree. Um, in part because, Gwendolyn, I think one of the things that, that, that you're hearing there, very rightly is this is a more direct echo of the prose of the Quenta, and flowers sprang beneath his marching feet, is very close to what's actually written in the Quenta, for a time of opening and growth was come into the earth. But you see, this is what we would expect, right? We would expect that at times, the Anglo-Saxon thing that Alfwina is writing would be doing his own summary, and putting it in his own terms, and even fitting it into his own frame, the chronological frame, right? But also, at other times, he's going to be influenced by, going to be directly rendering elvish ideas and even elvish phrasing into Anglo-Saxon, right? Because the elvish book, the Quenta, is the original that he's just summarizing, right? Um, anyway, anyway, so I was, um, I was very happy when I thought of this, this is the, and and again, please um, don't uh, don't misunderstand. Don't mistake any of these things that I've been saying, any of these conclusions I've been drawing tonight, as me telling you what really happened. I don't know what really happened. I don't know what was in Tolkien's mind. But what I cannot help but do when I read this book, when I read the Shaping of Middle Earth, is try to understand this narrative, this meta narrative, the story of the stories, right? How are all of these things coming together in Tolkien's mind? Um, because I can't not ask the question, why is he writing these? What is the purpose of these stories? How are they meant to fit together? I can't help asking that question. Tolkien didn't write the answer, and Christopher is very shy about that. He does very little explanation of that sort. Notice how in his commentary to the annals, he restricts himself almost exclusively to just noting the similarities and differences, pointing out when the narrative of the annals differs, like when the plot points differ from the version in the Quentin. Now that's an extremely um, an extremely useful thing that Christopher's doing there, of course, in doing that but there's a lot of analysis that he's not doing. The bigger story, he isn't even attempting to tell. And after Tolkien's death, Christopher's really the only one in a position, in any kind of position, really, to tell that. Now, Yana, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, uh, uh, Yana is gently implying that I could be accused of what I have named Critfic uh, in doing this. I would say no, not exactly. Let me emphasize. Um, what critfic is? Critfic is when you replace careful analysis and thought of a work with an assumption 
about what was going on in the author's mind. The classic example, and again, I, 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 I drew not the term, uh, I made up the term, the concept I got from C.S. Lewis. Um, when C.S. Lewis describes this phenomenon, one, exa- the, the one example that he gives is uh, if you read a passage in a text, and you say, or you read an essay or something like that, and you say, um, this was really rushed, you're not actually saying anything about that text. Instead, instead of saying what it was about the text that makes you come to that kingdom, you're merely asserting something about the story of how it was written, right? Um, so instead of saying, here's what I liked or didn't like, or here's what I think is bad about this text, instead of really digging down and explaining what you found to be bad about it. Instead, you merely wave your hand and you say, the author was rushed when he was writing this. He didn't really think this passage through. You don't know that. And as Lewis points out in his own experience, the, the, you know, when, when other people have practiced critfic on him, um, he's found them to be almost universally incorrect. That uh, it's not that the passage in question, the, the, the passage in question probably is bad. It has very real flaws. But that wasn't the issue. It wasn't rushed. He spent lots and lots and lots of time on it. It just wasn't successful, right? But the, the critic has uh, failed even to suggest that. And Lewis's point, which I think is a very good one, and that's when I brought up the whole critfic thing, um, is uh, I brought this up and coined this term in the context of talking about Jackson's film and all the critfic that everybody was not everybody almost everybody was indulging in right nobody wants to nobody very few people will actually d- go into detail about what they don't like about the Hobbit film instead they will instantly shift to saying oh yes it was it's all because of the the shift from two films to three films and and this is all clearly you know that movie was really bad. See, it's, it's all a money grab, right? Leaping completely over what was it about the film that you didn't like? What, what, what exact, wh- wherein do you see the problems in the films? And instead just making really vague and, uh, you know, not necessarily really well-grounded vague generalizations and presumptuous generalizations about how the thing ended up becoming that bad. So... But that's a different thing. What I'm doing here, what I'm trying to do, is not explain the goodness or badness of this thing by attributing some kind of, you know, uh, pseudo-biographical explanation, right? Um, uh, I'm not saying... It it would be critfic, for instance, to say, uh, you know, the, um, the annals are bad because... Tolkien's heart wasn't in it, right? That would be, you know, like, uh, you know, this this is not a, su- a success because his heart wasn't in it. That would be critfic, right? And that's kind of cowardly. Cowardly in the sense that it's not really, um, again, you're, you're merely making a, va- a vague claim that it, with the claim in that case being that they're not, that it's not very good, right? Um, but then you're not actually backing it up. You're not actually explaining. You're actually doing the work that a critic should be doing. If you're going to make that claim, you need to back it up and show how that, uh, how you came to that conclusion, what leads you to that conclusion. What I'm doing here um, is uh, and uh, is is something different, right? What I want to do is I'm doing this inductive process where we make a whole bunch of observations about these texts, and we sort of see what do those 
what do those observations add up to? Again, I'm not trying to explain the text. I'm not trying. I'm, sort of, I'm certainly not trying to avoid reading the text. Rather, I'm saying, what conclusions can we draw when we do read the text really carefully? How do these texts ask to be read? Notice how like metaphorical I get really quickly in talking like that. How can we understand how these texts go together? Um, because there is a story. We know from the beginning there's a story. We've seen that from the start. That is, not just the story of how J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, you know, uh, of Oxford, sat down to write the thing. That's not even primarily the story that I'm most interested in. What I am most interested in is what is the over-narrative that Tolkien himself is writing. And that's what's so much fun about the annals, right? Because it's the annals that really begins to bring that out. The Quenta itself, by itself, is comparatively static. Again, it's only got that one paragraph at the end which suggests anything about the text. What is this text and where did it come from? Right? The story of the story. With the annals, that blows up into something much, much richer. Right? The, oh, I would say, I should, I should say in fairness, the other thing is all those references to the poems right? in the Quenta that also kind of points to the overarching story. Um, yeah, yeah, good, good. Um, okay, so anyway, so I, 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 I wanted to explain that. Yana, I'm really, I was, I'm really glad you brought up the critfic thing, Yana, because I, I'd actually been toying with going there anyway, um, because I, I do want to make sure that that's, I'm not, trying to be defensive and defend myself against an accusation, but rather um, I want to make sure, first of all, that that concept isn't misunderstood, but but more importantly, to sort of see what it is, to, to, to point out more explicitly what it is I'm doing here and why. Um, and, of course, in the end I'm doing this because I... Uh, um, because this is the kind of thing that I love most. It's one of the things which makes Tolkien's writing so endlessly fascinating to me is to see these layers within layers of the stories uh, and how he's uh, sorting all this stuff out. Uh, it's really cool. Yana, I know you weren't actually accusing me of it. Um, uh, it's, that, that, that's, that's totally cool. Um, like I said, I'm just, I'm just your raising it gave me the opportunity to uh, um, to, uh, uh, to to bring it up and talk it through a little bit, which, as I said, I kind of wanted to do anyway, so it's all good. Um, all right, before we go, uh, I, I want to point out just a couple things that, I, because I don't want to entirely miss over those, uh, miss over, skip over those bits that Christopher Tolkien does point out, because there are some interesting moments, um, because, of course, Tolkien does seem to be constitutionally incapable of developing the story as he re- as he redoes it, right? So, going back and doing this summary from the Anglo-Saxon point of view um, in the annals, um, the story does change, right? And we see him do we do see him making some revisions. There were a couple things that I noticed. One which completely blew my mind the first time I read it. I mean, blew my mind. Um, not quite as mind-blowing in the big picture as the whole Anglo-Saxon annals thing, um, but uh, I was, uh, I guess, uh, what Sam Gamgee would call a real eye-opener. And that was Nana 
and the the status of Nienna in this in this text. Did you notice that? Did you notice how Nienna is now Manway and Melkor's sister in this story? I mean, whoo! Anyway, um, so let's um, back up a little bit uh, and uh, look at the story of Nienna in context here. Uh, Blast from the past. Uh, this is will be a review for most of you. For some of you, it won't. Um, here's Nienna originally. This is Nienna back in the Book of Lost Tales, Volume One. Okay, so this is this is ever so long ago. Uh, this is the the Nienna figure who wasn't even named Nienna. She's named Fui, uh, Ve Fui. Uh, no, just just a uh, 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 Fui. Sorry. Um, okay, so here's Fui. To Ve, Fui came not much, for she labored rather at the distilling of salt humors whereof are tears, and black clouds she wove, and floated up, that they were caught in the winds and went about the world, and their lightness and their lightless webs settled ever and anon upon those that dwelt therein. Now these tissues were despairs, and hopeless mourning, sorrows, and blind grief. The hall that she loved best was one yet wider and more dark than Vey, and she too named it with her own name, calling it Fui. Therein before her black chair burnt a brazier with a single flickering coal, and the roof was of bat's wings, and the pillars that upheld it and the walls about were made of basalt. Thither came the sons of men to hear their doom, and thither are they brought by all, uh, brought by all the multitude of ills that Melko's evil music set within the world. Slaughters and fires, hungers and mishaps, diseases and blows dealt in the dark, cruelty and bitter cold and anguish and their own folly bring them here, and Fui reads their hearts. Some she then keeps in Mandos, beneath the mountains, and some she drives forth beyond the hills, and Melko seizes them, and bears them to Angamandi, or the hells of iron, where they have evil days." Some, too, and these are the many, she sends aboard the black ship Mornier, who lieth ever and anon in a dark harbor of the north, awaiting those times when the sad pomp winds, when the sad pomp winds to the, to the beach down slow, rugged paths from Mandos. Okay, that's where Nienna starts, right? And yeah, Carita, she is really scary. Yeah, this is very different from Nienna in the Silmarillion. You can kind of see, like, you can recognize a vague outline of what will become Nienna. She's associated with tears and with grief, right? Um, but rather than showing how dis- how hope can come from through grief and mourning, um, she instead weaves the tissues of despairs and hopeless mourning and sends them out. Right, she is the source of tears and the source of grief and the source of despair, and she judges people and sends them to hell. Right? Um, yeah, this is, and she's Mandos's wife, FYI. Right? That's not explicitly mentioned in this passage, but she's Mandos's wife. Um, and remember the Anglo-Saxon translation of uh, of of Mandos. Remember Mandos's name. Right, he was the he was the lord of the dead, the lord of corpses, right? Nienna was the queen of corpses, right? She was the queen of the dead, uh, and uh, yeah, so she's. Um, this is where she begins. In the Quenta, we see her her story has been very radically changed. 
Vanna was his spouse, Tolkas's spouse, the queen of flowers, the younger sister of Varda and Pelurian, and the beauty both of heaven and of earth is in her face and in her works. Yet mightier than she is Nienna, who dwells with Nefantur Mandos. Pity is in her heart, and mourning and weeping come to her, but shadow is her realm, and night her throne. Now, on the one hand, remember, we're in a different genre here, right? This is the Quenta, we're in plot summary genre. This is way shorter, obviously, than that previous passage. And as Christopher Tolkien continues to remind us through the commentary on both the sketch and the Quenta, just because a detail isn't mentioned in the Quenta doesn't mean that Tolkien has rejected that detail, right? So the much greater detail that we get in the Book of Lost Tales pa- uh, passage about her weaving these, you know, dark mists and sending them out doesn't mean that Nienna doesn't still weave dark mists and sends them out, but it's very clear that... Um, she's doing it in different ways, right? Shadow is her realm, and night her throne, but pity is in her heart, and mourning and weeping come to her, not from her, right? She is not the wellspring of mourning and weeping as she is, as Fui is in in the Book of Lost Tales. Um, Rather, mourning and weeping come to her, come to her, and pity is in her heart. So we can see she is still associated with... uh, with these things, um, but, uh, you know, with mourning and with weeping and with shadow and with night. But the emphasis has shifted. And also notice the emphasis on her might, right? I'm not saying that she wasn't mighty in the Book of Lost Tales. She clearly was. But she only gets the two sentences here in the Quenta. And the transition into her is yet mightier than she is Nienna. So, you know... Okay, I mean, you say, like, you know, Vanna, the Queen of Flowers, is not the mightiest of all of the Valar in the first place, so to say that Nienna is mightier isn't saying that much. But I do think it's rather conspicuous that our introduction to Nienna is in insisting upon her might. And then, you know, so we get two things about her. She's mighty, and she dwells with Mandos. And then we go right into pity. Right, that's 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 where we immediately transition into from there. So, so we can we can sort of see how the concept of Nienna was developing, but she's she's definitely kind of getting a promotion here, right? Um, now you could say actually maybe she's being demoted. She was a more central figure in the whole afterlife scenario, right, in the old system. But I mean, sort of morally promoted, right? Uh, she's uh, uh, more of a good guy and certainly more <clears throat> of a complicated figure here. And then, boom. Of these, Manwe and Melko were most puissant, and were brethren. And Manwe was lord of the Valar, and holy. But Melko turned to lust, and pride, and violence, and evil. And his name is accursed, and is not uttered, but he is called Morgoth. The spouses of the Valar were Varda, and Yavanna, who were sisters. And Vanna, and the sister of Orome, Nessa, the wife of Tolkis. And Uinin, lady of the seas and Nienna, sister of Manwe and Melko, and Este. And I was like, what? Wait, Nienna, sister of Manwe and Melko? So, here we're told almost nothing of her. This is a very, uh, a very summary dis- you know, list of the Valar that we're getting in this paragraph, right, with very few details. Um, but boy, that's an interesting shift in the constellation, right? So now, now Nienna, um, it's not just mightier than she was Nienna, 
Nienna is the sister of Manuel. Now, it doesn't explicitly say that she was their peer, right? It does say that Manuel and Melko were most puissant and were brethren, right? So the, their greatest power, which is what puissance means, um, but uh, uh, but anyway, it, it's 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 the brethren is secondary to their power, right? Um, but. Uh, but yeah, but Nienna, she's um, so she's not necessarily as powerful as Melko and Manway, but she's in the family now, right? Uh, she and that puts her in a separate position. And notice it also now separates her from Mendos. She's no longer Mendos's wife. Again, even in the Quinta, it was still who dwells with Nefantur Mendos, um, which is a little vague, right? Is she married to Nefantur Mandus Mandos? Um, is that her? Is you know? So is she still his wife? Is she? She could be. Remember, she's going to be a sister eventually, right? Um, but she just, you know, is she, is she his sister? But she doesn't have her own place yet, right? She doesn't have her own flat. Um, that 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 could be. You know, we could read the Quinta that way, conceivably. Um, but uh, uh, it, but now, not only has she moved out of her brother's basement and gotten a place on her own, she goodness. She's now in a different family, in a different constellation entirely, and I find it remarkable. And you know what else becomes more remarkable? When uh, I am suddenly thinking of Nienna in this new way, Nienna's taking Melko's side when he comes up for parole. In 2900, Morgoth sued for pardon, and at the prayers of Nienna, his sister, and by the clemency of Manwe, his brother, but against the wish of Tolkos and Aule, he was released, and feigned humility and repentance, obeisance to the Valar, and love and friendship for the elves, and dwelt in Valinor in ever-increasing freedom. But he lied and dissembled, and most he cousined the Noldoli, for he had much to teach, and they had an overmastering desire to learn, but he coveted their gems and lusted for the Silmarils. Um, yeah, exactly. It's, uh, it's nepotism, right? The two who take her part, the two who choose, or to his part, the two who choose to let Melkor go are his brother and sister now. Um, this, and it makes me wonder, I don't know if it was this scene which inspired that. That is, if this this particular grouping, right, of Manwe and Nienna together forwarding the uh, release of Melkor. You know, I don't know if that was what suggested putting them together in one family or anything, but but it changes how this passage looks, right? Um, and it's even interesting, I mean... The passage in the published Silmarillion, where Nena Nienna supports the cause of Melkor when he's trying to get out of the Nick, um, is hard to explain. I always find it hard to explain. It can be done. You can make it work. But it's hard not to think that... It's hard not to find it a little bit undermining to Nienna's wisdom, right? If Nienna is about pity and about sorrow, and, you know, if, if she is... 
you know, sort of this wise compassion for the suffering of others. But if she can be taken in like that, right? If she's a sucker to, uh, you know, the con game that Morgoth is running here, it's, um, it's hard. Again, not impossible, but it's hard to explain. Here, it changes things. Now, Karita, I agree with you. It's not like it makes the problem go away, right? It's like, oh, so yeah, she was just like, you know, it was her brother, and she's like, oh, Melko, fine. You know, like, that doesn't make her look better, actually, right? Um, That still impugns her wisdom to a similar extent. I think the reason it makes me think about it differently, though, is that it shifts the grounds, potentially anyway, of her clemency, of her prayers, right? When she is, like in the published Silmarillion, when she's just Nienna, right? Nienna is alone and uh, she's acquainted with grief. The only context, like the only, there's only one answer to the question, why would she do this? Why would she seek, right? Well, because pity, it's what she does. Right? Um, does that mean that pity is foolish? That Nana's pity is foolish? Right? I mean, again, that's that's why it's hard to explain because it kind of it's difficult not to go down that road in that passage. Here, at least, we have another answer to the question. Right? Um, why does she prayer? Why, why does she offer? You know, why does she pray for his pardon? Pray to you know offer prayers for his pardon again. Why? Because. He's a brother. And potentially that enables us to imagine her being conflicted about this. Perhaps her own wisdom independently would lead her to be cautious, but she's willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. She's willing to go out on a limb because he's her brother. Maybe. I don't know. Again, I don't know if that makes it easier or worse, but, um, uh, but it's different. Anyway, and it it, it, it adds it a, a, a different kind of dimension to that passage, which I think is interesting. Um, one last other... Uh, um, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, Karita wants to put uh, those uh, I-have-to-try words. Yeah, Karita's uh, yeah, uh, thinking about the, the discussion we had in... Uh, uh, well, it's going to take a long time to explain, Karita. It was a conversation we had in the Silm Film Project when we were talking about Manway's attitude towards Melkor and drawing a parallel, uh, which was suggested by one of our listeners in our discussion boards, to Luke Skywalker's words about going to turn himself over to Vader in Return of the Jedi, how he doesn't feel at all confident that he's going to be able to win his father back, but he says, I have to try, right? Um... Okay, okay, yeah. Uh, but anyway, so yeah, Creed is thinking it, th- this angle enables us to kind of think about Nienna in that way, right? The, the I have to try approach. Yeah, yeah, I like it. Um, anyway, okay, one last point, and I'll let you guys go. Um, this is another one of those places that Christopher flags where the story has changed here in the Annals version, and uh, he doesn't comment on it much, other than to say the general thing, which certainly seems to be, um, which seems which seems fairly obvious. 
Um, okay, but Feanor hardened, this is, uh, of course, the burning of the ships, but Feanor hardened his heart and held on, and so also, but reluctantly, did Fingolfin's folk, fleeing the constraint of their kindred and fearing for the doom of the gods, for not all of Fingolfin's house had been guiltless of the kinslaying. Felagund and the other sons of Finrod went forward also, for they had aforetime great fellowship, Felagund with the sons of Fingolfin, and Oradreth, Engrod, and Egnor with Kelegorm and Curufin, sons of Feanor. And um, uh, Christopher just kind of generally mentions that this idea of Oradreth being particular friends with Kelegorm and Curufin such close friends that Oradreth, Engrod, and Egnor actually got a ride on the ships with the Feanorians, right? And never crossed the Helcaraxe. Um, Christopher Tolkien very sort of vaguely says this is doubtless due to the development of the Nargothrond story. Yes. I, clearly, right? The connection between Oradreth and Kelegorm and Curufin. We've seen the Nargothrond story growing, right, in the sketch and in uh, and in the Quenta, so we can see what that's doing. But, but again, Christopher doesn't go as far as I would want to go. I, I, I want to go the next step, right, to say, okay, yes, it's connected with the development of the, of the Nargothrond story. How is it connected with the development of the Nargothrond story? And in what sense can we see this little detail, right, this little moment here? Um, in what way is the Nargothrond story continuing to develop through this moment? And the answer to that seems relatively clear. What does this establish? How does this change? What element does this reference add to the Nargothrond story? How does it change? How will it change? If we have this first, by the time we get to Nargothrond, right... And Kelegorm and Kurafin usurping the throne of Nargothrond. Right, exactly, Nancy. Now it's a big, fat betrayal. A really pointed betrayal. And James, yes, it explains the presence of Kelegorm and Kurafin in the first place. Right? Remember, in if we go backwards in Tolkien's creative chronology, they Kelegorm and Kurafin first get attached to Nargothrond because they founded it. Right? They were the original rulers of Nargothrond, then he changed his mind, right? And he decided he wanted the house of Finrod, later known as Finarfin. Uh, that is, he wanted Felagund and Oradreth to be involved down there, and have Kelgorm and Kurufin be the usurpers, rather than the rather than the people. So, so yes, James, this gives a, a clear reason why when Kelgorm and Kurufin, after the battle, right, after the Battle of Unnumbered Tears, Kelgorm and Kurufin uh, need a place to stay, Right? Why would they go to uh, uh, to Nargothrond? Well, of course, because they're tight with Oradreth, right? Angrod and Egnor are unfortunately dead by now, but uh, but Oradreth is still around, right? So um, so it explains why they go there. Yes, it makes good sense of why they go there, but it also, as Nancy was pointing out, makes their usurpation of Nargothrond ten times as horrible, right? Oradreth isn't just some weak schmo that Kelegorm and Kurufin push aside, right? You kind of get that sense in the published Silmarillion, right? Oradreth is like... I was going to say he never got a date to the prom, but it looks like he did. I mean, he had a, he had a, he had a daughter anyway, but but anyway, the point is he... he, he uh, um, he's kind of a weak character, right? He gets 
pushed aside by Kelgarm and Kurif. You know, he's he's in the shadow of his big brother, right? Then he gets immediately pushed aside by Kelgarm and Kurifin, and then he gets pushed aside by Turin when Turin comes in. So this is this is Oradreth, right, in the published Silmarillion. But that story is different here. When Kelgarm and Kurifin usurp the throne of Nargothrond from Oradreth, who is left in the place of his brother, it is a deeply personal betrayal. Not just in a, there's a sense in which it's almost I hesitate to say this because it seems shocking almost worse than the kinsling kinsling's really bad, right? but it wasn't personal this is personal they were friends they were super close there is great fellowship between Oradreth and Kelegorm and Kurifin. Um he's like a part of their family and they turn on him, right? And so we see the doom of Mandos and the betrayal and everything. So, um, that, I like that. Um, It'll be fascinating to see as we move forward what happens with that, right? Where does that go? It's not in the published Silmarillion. We don't get any previous relationship between Oradreth and Kelogarm and Kurofin. Where does it go? When does he drop that again? Um, but but anyway, really cool little. Just in one sentence, we can we can see you know we can kind of smell from afar the the direction that that story is headed in, right? And that's that's uh, that's really neat. It's pretty cool. All right, I'll let you guys go. Next time, the Annals of Beleriand. Let us see how. Uh, uh, so having begun, we'll see how our friend Alfuna goes on. Um, needless to say, you're going to want to be. Uh, you're going to want to be paying attention to Anglo-Saxon things, right? So let's uh, uh, and 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 do look at the. I hope, I, I I hope that in looking at those parallel passages between the Anglo-Saxon and the modern English, um, I hope that I that I maybe uh, if you had just been kind of, you know, letting your eyes glaze over when the Anglo-Saxon text you know comes in totally understandable if you've never studied Anglo-Saxon. Um, but you see how when you actually do put them next to each other, you really can piece it out, even if you don't know Anglo-Saxon at all. Um, you can at least get some some kind of sense of it, right? Um, so pursue that, right? Take a look at that as we move forward. All right. Thanks, everybody. Uh, good night, and I will see you guys next week for more Annals from Alfwina. Thanks very much. Bye now.